Thank you so much, Ruth. Um, wonderful, beautiful. Um, <clears throat> you know, when Sandra and I were blessed with our first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth child, children, I keep counting there, uh, by the blessings and provisions of God, we had no idea that, um, <clears throat> that the Lord would give us such uh, gifted children in different ways, and uh, we're, we're very thankful. Um, brethren, there are um, a number of things that are um, <clears throat> requiring attention within our body and matters that we have gone through as a flock that, um, that I'll be addressing um, in the near future. But uh, I would just say this, that our body has, um, the Lord has delivered our body, our church, through a number of trials, and there were even trials um, prior to my coming, and I would just say that we can give glory to God for his providence and deliverance through all of this. As I mentioned uh, at the all-church meeting, uh, we're praying about and considering the importance of getting back to this matter of um, having a, a membership class and bringing a members uh, who've been waiting to become members uh, to bring them into the fold and we're looking forward to doing that. Uh, Dennis already mentioned the Wednesday night um, meetings that we're having at the Parsonage and again I would just encourage you to be a part of that. Um, it's, it's really been a, a rich blessing and uh, it's a great time and opportunity as well just to have times of concentrated fellowship and just getting to know each other. I'll tell you there's no substitute for that. Um, we can spend time together um, maybe once a week, but that's really not enough for us to become invested relationally in our, our lives with one another. And so this has really been a, a great time for all of us. Um, Scott Crawford <clears throat> has been uh, on the uh, schedule to be considered for a vote for um, becoming an elder, and this has gone on now for a year. We delayed. Um, recently because of recent events, but uh, he'll be presented to the body to serve as an elder here coming probably at the beginning of the year. And uh, also Scott will be preaching next Lord's Day and we're looking forward to that. And uh, I've been uh, talking with him and conversing with him about that. He'll be ad addressing uh, various details about Philemon, uh, uh, the book of Philemon and Onesimus and how it is that Onesimus was brought to maturity and was therefore thereby uh, capable of being a servant, uh, a mature servant for the gospel. A very important concept that uh, Scott will bring to bear when he comes to preach the word. If you haven't already done so, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. I've already made the point and comment that this is a very small book, and yet it is a tremendous book. Don't let its size fool you. It's, it's really an amazing uh, letter and epistle. And in many ways, uh, as we've already discussed, it's somewhat of a practicum on the foremost commandment. Remember, Paul was explaining to Philemon that, um, that the Lord had given him such an abundance of love that was... Uh, practically uh, impacting his own life and his own ministry for the gospel. So on several occasions, Paul talks about the faith and love that was in Philemon, and he made his appeal 
uh, to Philemon on the basis of that treasury of faith and love that God had placed within him. And so he makes an appeal to his free will that he would act not merely out of an act of obedience to a command, but that he would actually serve Christ as one who has been set free to do so. And last Lord's Day, we talked at length about the concept of the word slave and how it is that in our culture, we've kind of ruined the concept of the, of the word slave. It's, it's almost a, an exclusive pejorative where you hear the word slave and all that you can think of is the, the tragedy of the transatlantic slave trade. That's our most recent memory of the concept of what it means to be a slave. But we have to be careful because the Bible uses the word slave in a very important way. And Jesus Christ, we learned in Philippians chapter 2, he came in the form of a doulos, a bond slave, being made in the, in the image and likeness of men. And he, in his humility, went to the cross and died there in our stead out as a servant, as one who served the will of the Father. This is a very important concept. And so we talked about how it is that we are to imitate Christ. We are to have the very mindset of Christ where we consider the needs of others as being more important than our own. And this is the very heart of the servanthood that Paul calls us to. But the thing that we have to remember, and this is the point that we made last week, is that Christ was a bond slave whose servitude was perfect and had no sin, and therefore his servitude is meritorious. His servitude is the very merit upon which I stand. I don't have meritorious service. I can't have it because it is fraught with sin. The best that I can do is still fraught with the corruption of sin. And that's why we then consulted Luke 17, where the servants who are um, described there describe themselves as those who are unprofitable servants or bond slaves who did that which was necessary or that which they ought to have done. They were unworthy. Why? Because they're sinful slaves. They're fallen creatures, just like you and just like me. And so we have to keep these distinctions in mind. The servitude of Christ, I am to imitate, but I can never reach that level of perfection. I look to Christ and his servitude as being the basis of my own merit. I don't have merit, but his merit is now imputed to me. And I, as a servant, must remember that I am unworthy, and what I do, I do as that which is due to God. And so I keep in view constantly in view his worth, his value, his glory in everything that I do. These are important principles, brethren. There are many, many lessons, as I've said, that we glean from this precious little book. But I want to remind you of a very important concept here. The book of Philemon has these, these, these lessons that we've considered and much more, but one of the things that we do learn from the book of Philemon is this concept of looking at other individuals in view of their humanity. Paul is enjoining Philemon to receive Onesimus back to him, not as the world would receive him. The world would look at, at Onesimus as being a, just an object that costs money and an object that really uh, uh, led to Philemon uh, experiencing financial loss. But instead of looking at Onesimus in this way, Paul is enjoining Philemon to see him as a human being who is redeemed by grace and who is now useful in the gospel. 
I bring this up because the book of Philemon, this is not really well known, but the book of Philemon was very instrumental in the abolitionist movement in defeating the transatlantic slave trade because of this valuation of human life that is so prevalent in this epistle. J.B. Lightfoot says this regarding the prominence and importance of the book of Philemon in this respect. He says this, he says, the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire, which came at an enormous material sacrifice, is one of the greatest moral conquests which England has ever achieved. The emancipation of the African in the vast republic of the New World was a victory not less important than either to the well-being of the human race. Thus, within the short period of little more than a quarter of a century, this reproach of civilization and humanity has been wiped out in the three greatest empires of the world. It is a fit sequel to these achievements that at length a well-directed attack should have been made on the central fortress of slavery and the slave trade, that is the in interior of Africa. Africa was selling its own people, uh, sadly. May we not venture to predict that in future ages, when distance of view shall have adjusted the true relations of events, when the brilliancy of empires and the fame of wars shall have sunk to their proper level of significance, this epoch will stand out in the history of mankind as the era of liberation. If so, the epistle to Philemon as the earliest prelude to these magnificent victories must be invested with more than common interest for our generation. Now, there are reasons why he says this, and I'll get to this actually towards the end of the sermon, but the book of Philemon is kind of this quiet influence that was actually very powerful during the period of the transatlantic slave trade, and Christians proclaimed the truth of Philemon in opposition with the brutality that was taking place against fellow human beings during that time. Now, as we've been going through the book of Philemon, I want to read the text which leads us up to the very passages that we're going to be studying here this morning. So look with me again at Philemon. It's such a short epistle, I can just read half of it and it won't take long. But I want you to remember the context of what we've been looking at here in the book of Philemon. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother." Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, 
who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then he comes to this verse. If then you regard me a partner, accept him, as you would me. Brethren, this is the first of the two key appeals that Paul makes to Philemon. So everything that he's been saying up to this point is now leading to this verse, verses 17, these verses, verses 17 and 18. And this morning, I want us to unpack what verse 17 has to teach us about what Paul is appealing for. First of all, we need to consider what the premise of this appeal is. The premise of this appeal. He says this, If then you regard me a partner, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now we all know what a conditional conditional sentence is, right? We speak, speak in conditional sentences all the time. Uh, If it's not too late, I'd like to come over to your house and visit you. To, to which you might say, well, it's midnight. It is a little too late for you to come and visit me. There, there are conditions that we often set in statements that we give because we might say, well, you know, I, I'm not able to meet the condition that you're looking to, to achieve. And so uh, there are conditions that would rule out certain actions. In this case, the condition that is being set is this, is that he's saying to Philemon, if you regard me a partner, then I want you to do this. I want you to receive him back as if he were me. But look at the condition. If then you regard me a koinonone, koinonone, a partner. This is a very important term, and it really bears many different ideas about what it means to be a partner and how we should determine the people with whom we uh, render or establish partnerships. The word koinonone speaks of one who participates with another in some enterprise or matter of joint concern. That's the simple and basic definition of the term. When you think about it, there are all kinds of different partnerships that we establish in life. If you work for a company with many different people, you are engaging in a partnership with other workers, and what do you do? Are you all doing your own thing and doing whatever pleases you, or are you working towards a common goal for the good of the company? Well, obviously, it's the latter. Sometimes we establish partnerships on the basis of hobbies that we enjoy or sports that we like to play. Or sometimes sports teams. I, I got to tell you, I grew up, having grown up in California, I had very uh, great amount of confusion about what team loyalty I was supposed to have. I was born in the Bay Area, 
So it was the Oakland Raiders back then and the San Francisco 49ers. So that was the team I was supposed to be for. Then we moved to Southern California and then it was what? The uh, LA Rams, I think at the time, and the San Diego Chargers. And we had four teams in one state. I didn't really know who I was supposed to root for. And then when we moved to Minnesota, it was the Vikings or you die, you know? You understand this, and for those of you who know that you go to a, t a state where there's just one team, uh, you better be for that team or watch out. And the devotion of Minnesota to the Vikings is actually terrifying, <laughs> I've got to say. There are all kinds of partnerships that we establish, and sadly, when I was an unbeliever, the only partnerships that I had were my drinking buddies, so that when the Lord saved me, I had to say goodbye to a lot of those partnerships, not because I, did, I wanted to dissociate with them, but because I became centered on the gospel, and they didn't want to hear it. Brother, it's very important that we think about how we establish partnerships and what priorities we need to have in those partnerships. The central partnership that we ought to seek with others is the partnership of a Christ-centered pursuit of godliness. I'll say more about this later. But I want us to think a little bit more about this conditional statement. And I could go through a lot of the details of this. There, in, in, in the Greek language, there, there are four different conditional statements that you can have. The particular one that we have here is what's called a first-class conditional statement. And what you have here is, is that the premise is assumed to be true or valid and therefore could be translated uh, as since you regard me a partner. In other words, Paul is writing to Philemon and he knows what Philemon knows about him. He's basically saying, you know me, you co-labored with me, you ministered with me, you know that we're partners for the thing that's actually important. We're partners in the gospel. I know this about you. You know this about me. And therefore, when he comes, when he returns, you accept him as me. Again, the word koinonon speaks of the idea of one who participates with another in some enterprise or matter of joint concern. For the Christian, we're to be partners in the gospel. We're to be partners in the glory of Christ. And we have to be careful about the partnerships that we establish. It's striking to me whenever I read First and Second Corinthians, there are some of the deepest and hardest rebukes ever issued against a church um, above all the epistles as we see in First, First and Second Corinthians. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. That's a remarkable statement. Imagine writing to a church and saying, hey, stop sinning. But he had to do that because they were enjoining them, they, they were joining themselves to others who were drawing them into sin. Because bad company corrupts good morals. I would say to you, brethren, that this concept of who we establish partnerships with is absolutely crucial. The Pharisees believed that they were in good company with the prophets of yesteryear. They actually believed that they were the uh, inheritors of the tradition of the prophets of the Old Testament. 
And yet Jesus had to rebuke them and remind them of the fact that they were not partners of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, they were very much the contrary. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the, the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners, there's the word, partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And then he says this, so you testify against yourselves that you are the son of those who murdered the prophets. They thought they were partners with the faithful prophets of yesteryear. And Jesus said, no, you're rejecting me. And they spoke of me. And yet by rejecting me, you're demonstrating the fact that you would have murdered them as well. But then it's important that we consider this matter of partnership. You'll notice that Paul doesn't qualify the nature of his ministry and why it is that he even knows that Philemon knows all this about his dedication to the gospel. Again, he assumes this. He takes it for granted that Philemon knows his commitments to the gospel. But one thing is for sure, throughout the, throughout the epistle, he speaks of his devotion to the ministry of the gospel And so in a sense, the letter itself speaks much of the gospel partnership that Paul had. And so when he says in Philemon 12, he says, I have sent him, Onesimus, back to you in person. That is sending my very what? My very splagna, my very heart. You've got to know that when he comes to you, he is a direct representation of the very priorities that I uphold. And that's why... Paul wanted him to receive Onesimus as if he were the Apostle Paul himself. This is not a personality thing. This is a gospel priority thing. And he's saying to Philemon, Onesimus shares the same priority of the gospel. That's why you need to receive him. And this is why I say to you, brethren, we too need to think about our partnerships, our associations, our friendships. You know, one of the reasons why I believe that the transatlantic slave trade sadly carried on for as long as it did is because the church at the time did not consider this question of partnerships properly. I've already spoken to you and I've already addressed the sad reality of R.L. Dabney and the teachings that he advocated and advanced even in his systematic theology, talking about the inferiority of the Africans, just a grotesque statement that he made regarding others. The church had an opportunity to answer the question, with whom will we partner? And some professing churches failed in this matter. And they actually became advocates of the transatlantic slave trade, advocates of this idea of kidnapping human beings and selling them as mere property. And those who did this should be ashamed of themselves. If you'll recall, it was some time ago that I mentioned the story of Phyllis Wheatley, who was an African slave who was sadly ripped from her country and family in 1761 at the tender age of eight. Imagine that. It's almost impossible to imagine, but imagine an eight-year-old child being stolen like property and sold like property here in the colonies. In the providence of God, she came to saving faith in Christ and became a remarkably gifted poet of world renown. 
In many of her works, she gave glory to God for her salvation, devoid of a spirit of bitterness that you might expect, and we see so often in the modern day, among the advocates of social justice. But listen to this portion of a poem that she wrote where we see this privilege, this, this wonderful reality of her exalting Christ, exalting her Redeemer. She says this, I, young in my life, by seeming, seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Africa's fancy happy seat. What pangs excruciating must molest, what sorrows labor in my parents' breast. Sealed was that soul and by no misery moved, that from a father seized his babe beloved. Such, such my case, and can I then but pray others may never feel tyrannic sway. And then she says this, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption never sought, nor knew. And, this, and the poem goes on and exalts Christ for his work of redemption. Brethren, I tell you this, Phyllis Wheatley, in the eyes of the world, was nothing. She was just a chattel slave. And yet in the eyes of God, she was a precious child of God. If we don't understand how to look at another human being, in such a manner that we look at another human being as God sees them, then we have missed too much in our understanding of what the Bible says. Wheatley garnered the respect of many around the world, even capturing the attention of individuals like Thomas Paine and George Washington, but more importantly, she garnered the deep respect of many believers, including John Newton and Thomas Clarkson. These men were champions of the abolitionist movement in England, and these were men who understood that Wheatley was, most of all, a known, a partner in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though the world denigrated her as a nothing, they understood that she was a precious child of God and a co-laborer in the gospel. In fact, Clarkson used her poetry in order to rebuke those who advocated for the slave trade at the time. And so Paul says, if then you regard me a partner, or we could say, we could translate it this way, since then you regard me as a partner, you know who I am, and I know who you are. We are partners in the gospel. And based upon this, he says, Therefore, accept him as you would me. Don't treat him any differently than how you would treat me. When he says, accept him, this is in the imperatival form. Normally, we would call this a command. Imperatives typically or usually, most commonly, are used in the form of a command, but sometimes they're offered in, a, in the sense of a very strong appeal or exhortation. And I believe that's exactly what we have here. It's not a command. Paul's already talked about the fact that he could have commanded him to do the right thing, but he instead makes an appeal to Philemon. Again, wanting Philemon to make a choice out of his own free will, out of the love that was in his heart that God placed there, 
That was the appeal that he made. Consider the difference between the two for a moment. Again, I served in the military. I've mentioned this a couple of times. I happened to, in the, in, when I was in Virginia, I happened to serve in a, in a squadron in which there was a brigadier general who uh, oversaw our squadron. And it's not common to have generals in, in squadrons, and not many mil military individuals see generals at all, but we had a brigadier general in our squadron. And sometimes we had to report directly to him. I gotta tell you, um, I, I really stood at attention when I went into his office and uh, was a, a wee bit nervous as a young airman in the military. But I can guarantee you that he never issued a command with any of these attached conditions where he would say, you know, if you regard me as a worthy member of the armed services, then I want you to do this. No, in the military, it's just do this and be done with it. It's a command. There's, there's no appeal whatsoever. Paul's not issuing a command. He's an apostle. He could have done it. But as we've already established, he makes the appeal to Philemon to do that which was proper. As he said, even though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. Yet for love's sake I appeal to you. Brother, I love you. I know you love me. I know that God has poured out his love in your hearts. In your heart, I want you to act on that love that God has given to you to be a faithful servant. And that's why he says, the freedom that you have in Christ, use it. You've been set free not to do your own will and bidding, but to do the will and bidding of the one who redeemed you. That's why he said in verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. And so the condition here, or the instruction, the exhortation rather, is this. Receive Onesimus as you would me. I like Young's literal translation, how they translate it. It says, if then with me thou hast fellowship, receive him as me. As if I were the one standing in front of you, receiving in that way. Or the King James translation is very good too. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. And all of this is conditioned upon Philemon's knowledge of the fact that, yes, yes, I know you're a partner in the gospel, and I know that I'm a partner with you in the gospel. And therefore, I have this privilege then to receive Onesimus in this manner. You know, it's interesting that Paul didn't have to explain to Philemon the extent to which he was a faithful minister of the gospel. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel. We know this. We understand this. But, but Paul does not invest time and energy explaining to Philemon how he was a faithful minister of the gospel. He had to do that with the Corinthians, remember? They were actually questioning him and questioning him, his apostleship, questioning his dignity, his character, and so forth. 
And so he had to get into the issue of defending his legitimacy as a, an apostle, but with Philemon, there's none of this. None of this. Paul had been a model to Philemon and others regarding the gospel, and mark this, Paul suffered greatly in his ministry to the Gentiles and made a host of enemies from the Jewish communities because he did this. By bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, this brought about great affliction and opposition from the Jewish community. Paul, who was a Jew who was converted by, by the Lord Jesus Christ, immediately became an enemy to the Jewish community because of his bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. This brought about great hostility by the Jews. Remember, I think I mentioned this before, that in, in the Jewish oral tradition, they believed that there were three causes, three things that would bring about sin in the life of an individual. Three things cause a person, the text says, to transgress against his conscience and the will of his maker, number one, Gentiles. Just the presence of a Gentile would bring about sin. Can you imagine that? Having, having a Gentile in the room and say, you know what, I just sinned, and it's that Gentile's fault. Gentiles could bring about sin in your own life, an evil spirit, and the pressing needs of poverty. We talk about a victimization theology. Just the presence of a Gentile they believed falsely could make an individual sin. Matthew Henry says it well when he describes this bizarre mentality regarding the hatred that they had for the Gentiles. He says that the Jew accepts all Gentiles as their neighbor, for they are not our neighbors, but those only that are of our own nation and religion. They would not put an Israelite to death for killing a Gentile, for he was not his neighbor. They indeed say that they ought not to kill a Gentile whom they were not at war with, but if they saw a Gentile in danger of death, they thought themselves under no obligation to help to save his life. Such wicked inferences did they draw from that holy covenant of particularity of a peculiarity by which God had distinguished them, and by abusing it, thus they had forfeited it. This animosity against the Gentiles is evident when we see Paul being arrested in the temple for ministering with or alongside a Gentile, a Gentile by the name of Trophimus. In Acts 21 and verse 28, we see that the Jews cried out as Paul was ministering the gospel alongside a Gentile, and they said, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. We got a Gentile in the room. And now there's sin, like as if they were sin free. Remarkable. And after Paul was first seized by the Romans, the Jews gave him over, pleading for his death in view of his personal testimony and mission to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 22, Paul declared to the Jews in verse 21, he said, And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's as far as he got in his sermon. As soon as he mentioned Gentiles, it was over. 
They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. I ask you this question. What was the cost to Paul for having this partnership in the gospel and ministering to all flesh, including Gentiles like Philemon and Onesimus? What was the cost? Well, it almost cost him his life. Brethren, it's hard to fathom. But when Paul makes this appeal to Philemon and he talks about this partnership in the gospel, you have to put it in the broader context of everything that Paul went through and endured just to speak to Gentiles about Jesus Christ. Paul's message of the gospel, which declared that God's Messiah was for the Jew and Gentile alike, brought about great hatred and disdain from the Jewish community, sadly. But this is the very calling and ordination that Christ gave to Paul. As he said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Philemon knew all this about Paul. He didn't know it in an academic sense only. He knew it in a personal dynamic and reality of the ministry that he shared with him. Philemon knew full well the unbreakable bond Paul had with Christ in the gospel. Of course, Paul was a partner in the ministry of Christ. Of course, Paul was a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Philemon knew this Paul knew this about Philemon. They shared this priority, and so Paul says, therefore, therefore, with this priority of the gospel, receive this man who shares this same priority. Finally, brethren, here's some summary thoughts. The name Onesimus means useful. Profitable. At the time that he ran away, he became an expense to Philemon. But Paul is saying to Philemon, well, now he's a redeemed man. He's returning to you. And now we get to share in the profit of the gospel. We have a co-laborer in Christ. Receive him in that way. Philemon was to receive Onesimus back as, the, as Paul himself, as one who is a brother in the flesh and in the Lord. And by the way, I'm going to say more about that statement because by itself that's a very loaded statement. I'm saving that for the closing of this epistle. But again, I say to you, the powerful message here should remind us of the fact that when we carefully study the scriptures, we must understand our priorities need to be measured and governed by the gospel itself, by the word of God itself. Whatever partnerships and allegiances we ever have, this question must be asked and answered. Are those partnerships and relationships advancing my priority 
in the gospel? Or are they tearing those priorities down? For those who had a copy of the scriptures during the transatlantic slave trade, those who ignored its message were ignoring a great deal. William Wilberforce, who was used mightily in order to bring about the end of the slave trade, quoted from Philemon and said to a man, wrote to an individual who was actually trying to promote slavery using the book of Philemon, which is actually, by the way, one of the things that's really interesting, having studied this at length, there were men who were actually in the ministry who used texts like Philemon to justify the slave trade. It's remarkable when you think about it. Talk about eisegesis. It's really amazing. But Wilberforce says this, St. Paul directed Philemon to regard Onesimus as a brother. He did not rend the civil tie that bound him to his master by arbitrary individual power, which was the charge that which was the charge that Wilberforce and his friends were doing, fomenting an insurrection, which was false. Wilberforce then says, Nor more, no more do we, but by directing him to be treated as a brother, did he not substantially claim for Onesimus even more than the freedom that we ask of the African slaves? He's just saying, listen, these are fellow human beings, fellow creatures who need to be treated as such rather than being treated as mere property. And this is why I say to you, brethren, that the transatlantic slave trade was an opportunity for the professing church to stand up for the gospel. Some did, and some failed. And those that failed, failed to consider what their partnership really needs to be, what their priorities really were. Once we lose the priority of the gospel, we lose everything. Once we lose the priority of heralding the word of God, we lose everything. Once we lose the priority of being pillars in support of the truth, it's all gone. And Satan is constantly looking to give, give the church an opportunity to compromise. And brethren, we must not do this. Those who partnered with the transatlantic slave trade were saying, yes, it's okay to kidnap human beings and sell them. And that's a great shame. As we think about our own priorities, brethren, and the priority of the gospel, we need to confess daily to God and cry out to God, Lord, teach me your way, not my way. Teach me your way. We all have all kinds of thoughts and ideas about what should be and what ought to be. And too many times our thoughts are governed by our emotions and our feelings. But these things we have to set aside for the priority of asking, what is God's will? And crying out to God, please make my will conform to your will. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Teach me thy way. Thy guiding grace afford teach me thy way help me to walk aright more by faith less by sight lead me with heavenly light teach me thy way let's stand together and cl close our time together singing this hymn hymn number 395 if you'd like to look at it in the hymnal 395 teach me thy way oh lord